19, uh, starting in verse 10, and this is God's word. The disciples said to Jesus, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we thank you for your word. How it is both challenging to us and comforting that your word cuts us and heals us at the same time. And so we pray now as we commit our minds to study your word that you would send your spirit among us, that you'd give us ears to hear what you have to say to us, and you'd apply these words into each one of our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm uh, thankful this morning for the opportunity to talk to you about the topic of singleness, uh, not least because uh, many of you are single, and a big question in your life may be, what does God have to say to me? What words does God have to say to me about, about my singleness? Does, do the scriptures have anything to say to me about my singleness? But um, for me as a pastor, you know, one of my main burdens as a pastor, my goals as a pastor, is that you is to assure you as a congregation of the goodness of God. That, you know, if someone comes to our church and what do I want them to say, you know, if they were at our church for six months, what was the main thing that they got from being our, part of our church was, was that they left with a sense of that God is unimaginably, wonderfully, the God of the Bible is profoundly good. And the things that were in the Bible that I thought were strange, I found out, oh, they're actually marks of God's goodness. And I, I, want, people to, I want you to know that God is good. And for those of, among us who are single and wish that they weren't single, wish that you weren't single, this singleness is something that raises the question of God's goodness profoundly. Because that question, does God really want good things for my life? How can I, and if God hasn't given me someone to spend my life with, how can I know that he's good? And that he is, has planned good things for me. And so it raises the question of God's goodness acutely. And today we're coming to Jesus' teaching about singleness. And uh, like all of Jesus' teaching, it's strange, cryptic, uh, and, and, it's, and it's challenging. And yet when we commit ourselves, we give our minds to study it, we find that it's profoundly rich and has so much to teach us. And so um, as we focus on this topic of singleness this morning, uh, I want to do so under these three headings, these three questions. First, why is singleness an important topic? Second, what are the reasons for singleness? There's different causes that, uh, for singleness, the, of how God brings singleness into our lives. And then third, how should we understand then our singleness? Okay? So why is it important? What are the reasons for it? And then, uh, and then how then should we understand it? And so the first question is this. Why is singleness an important topic? And, you know, throughout history, 
the majority of the world that has lived in uh, traditional cultures, a family has been revered as one of, if not the most important thing in a person's life. So if you're a woman, for example, living in a traditional culture, um, getting married and having children is deeply tied to a society's sense of that woman's worth. Like if you, if, that, that is what gives meaning to your life. And um, that was uh, especially true in Jesus' culture where it was, is most rabbis would have taught that it's a religious duty, certainly for every man, to get married and to have children and for women as well. And I'll tell you, that spirit this is the only way you can live a life is by getting married and having children. It, there's some of that spirit in our culture as well. I think there's some of that in Bellingham. Bellingham is a very pretty family-friendly uh, family kind of place. There's quite a lot of families. But you know, especially in a church like ours, where you know, there's lots of children running around, lots of people have children, and it could give you the impression that the only kind of God-honoring life is a life of having children and getting married. That's the only way to be a Christian. And anything that doesn't, any life that doesn't do that is actually some kind of an inferior life. But um, there is a kind of idolatry in that. Because when we say that this is the only kind of life that that is God-honoring, we are taking a good thing, marriage, family, which is a good thing, and we're turning it into an ultimate thing. And that's not just something to say to single people, that's something to say to married people, those of us who have families, that we have a sense where you can say, my whole identity is how many children I have, did I raise them well, and was I a good enough parent, what kind of marriage do I have? My whole identity is wrapped into that, and, um, and what I'm doing is I'm turning marriage and family into a god. But I'll tell you, you know, also in our culture, you might say, well, you know, actually our culture is not like that. Our culture actually... It, 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 doesn't say that you find your identity in family. We're not a traditional culture. We're a modern culture. And in a modern culture, though, what do people say that you find your identity in? If it's not marriage and family, what do you find your identity in? Well, it's in fulfilling your desires, right? You have dreams and longings. And when those dreams and longings are met, that's a fulfilling life. And so a big part of that is also uh, sexual fulfillment. We tie... Uh, our identities closely to sexual fulfillment. So it may not look like marriage and family, but it certainly looks like romance and sexual activity. And we say that I have to have that fulfilled in my life if I'm going to have a fulfilling life. And it's intriguing here that Jesus, he's just given his teaching, and last week we looked at Jesus' teaching on marriage, where he said that, uh, you know, what God has joined together, let no man separate. And he says the only reasons you, as a Christian you can get divorced is because of sexual immorality. And we looked at that in detail. And so the disciples then respond to that teaching in this passage in verse 10. And you'll see what they say. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. And so the disciples are being kind of flippant here, saying, well, that's the only reason you can get divorced. Jesus, come on, let's soften this a little bit. You know, then who's going to get married? No one's going to get married. But of course, in their society, everyone knew that, every, that everyone thought that everyone should get married. And so they say that, what are you saying? Is better not to get married? And interestingly, Jesus takes that statement totally seriously. And he says in verse 11, but he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying but only those to whom it is given. What is this saying? Not everyone can receive this saying. The saying is that it is better not to marry. 
And Jesus says, he actually affirms that. He says, you're actually right. It is better not to marry. Which is totally countercultural, totally surprising, totally shocking to the disciples. And that raises a question for us. Jesus says that it's actually better to not marry. Is that, is that a biblical view? Is that what the Bible teaches? And, uh, you know, actually, I was, uh, just recently, I was uh, uh, talking with a, a gal, she's a single woman, who uh, was talking to me about, she said, you know, it's hard for me as a Christian because it seems to me that the Bible and churches and Christianity only really has a plan for people who are going to get married and have children. It's like that's the one path that you can go down. And it just doesn't speak much to, you know, people in my situation where, you know, I, I, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to get married and, and have children. And, uh, and one of the things that she pointed to is she says, you know, in the beginning of the Bible, when God created humanity, it says that God made man after his own image, and then it, he blessed them, and he said, be fruitful and multiply. And she says, it seems like the Bible is saying that it's part of, it's essential to being human that you be fruitful and multiply. And if I'm not being fruitful and multiplying, am I somehow not having a complete human life? Am I not totally human? Am I less than? And how do we answer that? Well, we have to ask the question, who had the most fulfilling an abundant human life that ever lived. It's the Lord Jesus, who was not married and did not have children. That is a shocking reality. The most fulfilling life was a single life. And actually, I, if you turn in your bulletin, turn to page three, I put a little quote for, for you from uh, this a, a Bible scholar named Walter Moberly. He has this great quote. I love how he says it, too. He says, Jesus is the model of the fulfilled human being. The Gospels portray a compelling and attractive person who engages seriously with people and is good company at a party, yet all the evidence is that he lived as a sexual celibate. That's an amazing thing. He's relational, he engages with people, and yet he's, he's a celibate man. And, you know, it's interesting, the Apostle Paul, who was the great theologian of the New Testament, uh, and, you know, one of the heroes of the Bible, also a single man, talks about the, the um, cultural mandate from Genesis 1 about be fruitful and multiply, and this is what he says, listen, this is interesting, in, in Colossians 1.6, this, uh, this is what Paul says, Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is, now listen to this, bearing fruit and growing, being fruitful and multiplying. What he says is that the way that the cultural mandate is fulfilled is actually not primarily through having children, but now that the gospel is going to the nations, the cultural mandate is being fulfilled by Jesus. The first Adam, who was supposed to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, failed. And now the second Adam has come and is fulfilling the cultural mandate. That's Jesus by making disciples and, and reforming us into the image of God. And so what that says is that having the completeness of your humanity doesn't come through getting married and having children. It comes through being joined to Jesus. Jesus is the fullness of humanity. And so, as we ask this question, why is singleness an important topic for us to think about as a church? It's because it is very hard to live the single life well 
unless you have God's vision for the single life. What does God say? What does Jesus say about it? And it turns out that Jesus' views are both contrary to the traditional view of family and marriage and extended family and having children, and it's also contrary to the modern view of sexual fulfillment. He has a different view of life, okay? But then uh, Jesus also addresses a second question, though, in this passage, not just why it's important, but second, what are the reasons for singleness? Why do we find ourselves to be single as Christians? And Jesus' answer to this is cryptic. Look at verse 12. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of... Of the kingdom of in, uh, for the kingdom of heaven. Now, in these verses, uh, Jesus used the image of a eunuch to describe people who either live a single or a celibate life, and um, and he's not specifically talking about literal eunuchs because he talks about people who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven. And I, I don't think this is talking about people who have physically made themselves eunuchs. Um, but he's describing, though, the different reasons why Christians may find themselves to be single. And he says that there is a physical reason, a social reason, and a spiritual reason why people might find themselves in a single life. So first, there is a physical reason why someone might be single or have a celibate life. He says, for there are eunuchs who have been so from birth. Jesus says that there are people who are born into a sexual condition that will prevent them from marrying and having a family. Now, I should uh, just take a moment to say that the most significant contemporary application of this verse is people who are born gay. And um, I'll just say there's nothing in the Bible that says, uh, that suggests that a person cannot be born gay. I don't think that's the only reason why... Uh, people have homoerotic desire. Uh, there's social reasons, there's biological reasons, there's spiritual reasons, and it's complex. And for that reason, I think that there are people who are going to struggle with homo- homoerotic desire and who will still find a life of heterosexual marriage. And, um, and uh, th- 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 that is not necessarily the only uh, uh, sexual condition for them, if you put it that way. Um, but I think that there are going to be people who are going to say, you know, for example, a man who may say, being married to a woman, at least for now, is not an option for me. I just, I can't do that. And um, I'll just tell you, you know, the main argument in our culture right now for gay marriage is that we say that everyone, the only way you can have a fulfilling life is you, if you satisfy your desires. And if you, have, uh, if you get married and you have a romantic relationship, and that's the only way that you can have a fulfilling life. And so how could anyone prevent someone from having that kind of fulfilling life? And Jesus is saying here that's simply not true. That is an elevation of marriage and of sexual, uh, sexual intimacy that the Bible does not acknowledge. And here's Jesus who is the most loving person that has ever lived. And he's the person that has given uh, individuals more dignity than anyone else. I mean, he has transformed cultures by the dignity that he has shown to every single uh, human being. Says that there are people who are going to be born into a physical condition that will keep them from marrying and having children, and this does not keep them from having a fulfilling life. 
And uh, let me just say, in about a month and a half, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have a whole sermon on homosexuality. I'm touching on it briefly here, and I know that it's complex and there's a lot to say about it. It is important for us as Christians, as this topic is uh, addressed in our culture, uh, it's all over the place, we need to know that the Bible does speak about homosexuality in numerous places. And over and over again, it's clear that it's, it's a, a practice that's forbidden for Christians. And we, we have to be honest with the scriptures about that. That's what it says. And so we also need to know that as a church, that um, we, this needs to be a place where people can openly uh, wrestle with that question and what it means for them and what it means for what is a fulfilling life. How do I find a fulfilling life? How do I have relationships? How do I have intimacy? How do I deal with loneliness? All of these questions, these need to be addressed in this church in a way that's open and loving and honest. And, um, and so, first of all, Jesus says that one of the reasons that we may find ourselves in a single life is, be- is biological reasons. He also says, though, that there are social reasons that we might find ourselves to be in a life that demands singleness or celibacy. He says there, there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. He says there are people who have a single life, not because of the way that they've been born, or not because of their own choice, but because of the choices of others. And some of you that, you know, if you're here and you're single and you wish that you weren't single, this may apply to you because uh, you may say, you know, the situation is I, I haven't found someone to marry me. And it's actually the, the, the choices of others. Or I've been uh, hurt relationally in certain ways that it's hard for me to come close to people and to connect with people. And so living in this kind of world, in this kind of society, has, has prevented me from uh, being able to live a married life. And I'll just tell you, there's, you know, this is kind of aggravated, I think, by being a Christian, you know, especially a Christian in Bellingham, where there's not a lot of Christians. And the Bible says that if you're a Christian, you must marry in the Lord. That as you seek a spouse, you must find someone you say, my marriage is going to be built on serving the Lord and, and about worshiping the Lord and being a part of God's people and honoring the Lord and growing in the Lord. And there's no way I, I cannot marry someone who doesn't know the Lord or who rejects the Lord. And so the Bible says you need to marry a Christian. All of a sudden, the field of people that you can marry has been narrowed so small that oftentimes someone may go long periods of their life or their whole life without finding someone to marry. And this wasn't their choice. It wasn't the way that they were born, but it was, it's a social reason. And let me just give you one encouragement. I've said this before. If you are single and you're struggling with loneliness, and you say, I deeply want to be married, it is better to not be married and wish that you were than to be married and wish that you weren't. It's better to not be married and wish that you were than to be married and wish that you weren't. And so rushing into a relationship with someone who doesn't honor the Lord the way you do is not wise. But that relates to a third reason that uh, Jesus says that we might find ourselves to be single is for spiritual reasons. This is what he says, that there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. So some people will say that they are going to choose a single and celibate life because they want to serve the Lord. They want to give their lives to the Lord. And, um, you know, some of you might think a eunuch is kind of a graphic image. And actually, in the ancient world, it would have been, you know, Jesus' teaching is often that way, that his teaching, he uses graphic things in order to 
gets kind of burned in your memory. You don't forget what he taught. And, uh, you know, one historian described eunuchs as despised figures who haunted the courts of oriental monarchs. So you kind of picture, you know, eunuchs are the ones who wait on the women of a king or something like that, and they're kind of servants in a domestic house. But actually, the reality about eunuchs was that many eunuchs actually served in high-ranking positions in both the Assyrian Empire and the Persian Empire. They had access to the king. Um, They sometimes were military generals. And what that means was that they were entrusted by the king with important responsibilities in the kingdom. And what Jesus is talking about here is some people are going to say, you know what, my whole future, my whole life, I want tied up with this king and his dynasty and his kingdom. And so their whole life, they say, I want, I want it devoted to this king and to Jesus. And Jesus says, it's not going to be the norm, but there are people that are going to receive this calling and they are going to choose to not have a married, and, uh, uh, and you know, actually one of the, the most influential Christians of the 20th century, John Stott, was a celibate man, wrote profound theology, had a huge impact on the evangelical church. He was a preacher in, uh, in Britain, and, uh, and ex- this was exactly him. He had this calling. And so there are going to be people that for spiritual reasons are going to give their undivided loyalty to Jesus. And so Jesus says there's three reasons why Christians find themselves to be single, physical, social, and spiritual. But this leads to the third part of uh, the third heading, which I think is the most profound. How then should we understand our singleness? How should we understand it? And you know what was so surprising to me in this passage, I hadn't seen this before until this week, is in verse 11, it says, but he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. The saying, it is better not to marry, he says, is a gift. He says, Jesus says that singleness can be seen as a gift from the Lord. And what's striking to me is that it's not just the third kind of eunuch, the person who says, you know, I want to give my life to serve the Lord. That's not the only one that's a gift. He says all three kinds of singleness, even the ones that I didn't choose, can be seen as a gift from the Lord and should be received as a gift from God. I know for some of you here, you're single and you say, I wish I wasn't single. This is a difficult word for me. I'm supposed to thank God for this thing. It's so, so painful. I struggle with so much. And uh, it makes me feel lonely and aimless and lost. And I'm supposed to thank the Lord for this? Well, I think that Jesus, he's tender in this passage because he understands these are hard words. Look at the end of verse 12. He says, let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. And what he says, that word for receive, uh, kareo, it's, it's a word that actually means to hold or to contain. And what he's saying is, he says, this is such a big idea, it's such a profound thing, that actually singleness could be the, the best life. is so big that it's like our, our hearts are too small of containers to contain it. And the only ways we can contain it is if, if, if the containers of our souls are like enlarged so that we can receive it. And as strange as this sounds to think that, that singleness, something that we see as, as loneliness and aimlessness, aimlessness that Jesus could call a gift or that can be seen as a gift is actually, though, the way the Bible talks. 
So if you know uh, James 1, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Trials are joy? Aren't those things opposites? How can I see trials as joy, and yet the Bible totally inverts things and calls us to see our lives in a totally new light? And so what Jesus says is the way to endure singleness is by regarding it as a calling, as a gift. The way to endure, the only way to endure singleness is to receive it as a gift from the Lord. It's a completely new way of seeing your life. And um, this is what Psalm 119.32 says. I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. Lord, if you make my heart so that I can contain this gift, this calling, I will be free. I will run in your love. And um, let me just say, to receive singleness as a gift does not mean that you don't grieve it. It doesn't mean you're just happy and always say, praise the Lord for my singleness all the time. You don't have, that's not what it is. You can still grieve it. You can still long uh, to, be, to be married and to have children. You, you can still weep about it. And yet all of that grief is, is within the context of saying, I receive this from the Lord. It is his calling to me. And this goes back to, you know, what I was brought up at the, at, uh, at the introduction, that for many of us, the question of singleness brings most acutely gives us a question about God's goodness, right? And some of us say, you know, this is my problem with God's goodness, right? He's always giving gifts like this, like singleness. Like, those aren't the kinds of gifts that I want my Heavenly Father pouring down on me. Can you give me something that really is fun or something? And, um, and so, what does it mean to regard singleness as a gift? What is good about it? Well, I think first, the way to see singleness is good is, first of all, we have to take marriage and family off the pedestal that we put it on. We put it above everything else. And the thing that we need to realize is that marriage is temporal. It is not an eternal thing. It ends with death. Uh, marriage is difficult. And marriage is all-consuming. It will totally take over your life, and you will lose all your freedom. That's not a good or a bad thing. It's a good thing, and it's a difficult thing. So marriage is a good thing and a difficult thing, and singleness is a good thing and a difficult thing. And so it is the Lord who is supreme. And so first of all, we have to have a biblical understanding of, 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 of marriage and singleness. But then, um, what is the goodness, the giftedness of singleness? And you know, there's an important passage in 1 Corinthians 7 where Paul talks about singleness, and this is what he says. This is 1 Corinthians 7, 32. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord, but the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and uh, his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit, but the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. And what Paul says here is that there is a freedom in singleness. And that's why he says that actually singleness, he says the same thing, that singleness is better than the married life because you can serve the Lord more freely. And I'll just tell you personally, there have been a few single people that the Lord has brought into the life of our family who have just come at crucial times. You know, we, we had five children in five years. We were starting a church. 
And they came and they loved us and they cared for us and um, cared for our children and our children just adore them. And, uh, and part of the reason that they were able to play that role in their life is that they had taken the freedom that they had had in their singleness. They said, I'm going to use this to care for this family and to serve the Lord. And they were resolved that I'm not going to waste my singleness. Even if I long for a family, as long as I have this, I'm going to receive this as a calling and a gift from the Lord and I'm going to use it to bless others and to bless the Lord. And, uh, and I'll just tell you, what Jesus says is that if you do that, he promises you that you will not be alone. Because that's the big fear about singleness, is, is I'm going to be alone. And you know, at the end of this passage, Matthew 19, we're going to look at it next week, the very closing to this, this talk that Jesus is giving, um, he says these words, the end of chapter 19, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children for, or lands for my sake. So Jesus says anyone who has forsaken the blessings of a family in order to serve me will receive a hundredfold. And Mark adds, we'll receive a hundredfold in this life. Jesus says, if you serve me, I will bring hundreds of family members around you. And some of you are single people, you'd say, you know, I actually, I have people that are, are closer to me than my biological family. They know me better. They, uh, they love me better, are more involved in my life. And Jesus promises us that when we follow him, he will bring us fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters, and uh, we will have relationship and we will not be alone. And so Jesus knows the struggle of this calling. He knows the hardship of it because he's lived it. And he knows what you need. And so these are precious promises. Every calling God has for us, no matter how difficult, is a gift. Because in every calling, we experience God's grace. Um, even in our singleness, we can know that God is good, that he wants good things for us, and that he loves us. Let's pray together. Our Lord, uh, we thank you for these words. I pray uh, for those here who uh, are coming to terms with your teaching in this passage, I pray for your spirit to guide them into all truth, to be a comfort to them. And Lord, show each one of us what calling you have given to us that we may devote our lives to you and receive that calling with thanksgiving Enlarge our hearts, O Lord, that we might run in your commandments and know your freedom. In Jesus' name, amen.